Peter and I have Dr. David A. Wilcox with us today. He is a researcher at the Medical College of Wisconsin, and he has been working towards a cure for glansman's thrombocytopenia for how long now? We were working on it since 1994, almost 30 years. Since this is our first episode, and we have quite a few people who have kind of joined our community, and then we'll probably have some people listening who don't really know anything about glansman's thrombocytopenia. Can you explain exactly what it is? In 1918, a doctor, Swiss pediatrician, his name was Eduardo Glansman, and, it, and he had a young child come into his office whose blood couldn't clot in the test tube. This is right after World War I when it was reported. So he called it thrombosthenia, which the platelets are thrombocytes. Thrombosthenia means weak platelets. So they named it after him, Glansman thrombosthenia. And basically what it is, is that from an early onset in a person's life, they experience prolonged bleeding, usually at the mucous membranes. It can be terrible if they have a gastrointestinal bleeding. The molecular basis wasn't determined until the 1970s when they found out that people with drunk thrombocytopenia are missing one of two proteins. It's GP2B3A or called alpha-2B and beta-3. And they form a, a complex on the surface of platelets that bind to a sticky protein called fibrinogen. They help platelets to aggregate together and seal up a wound and then we pull the strands of fibrinogen together to stop the bleeding. So people who have glansman don't have those proteins. And so if you're missing one, neither of the proteins can get to the surface. It can be a qualitative defect, which means that only a single change gets to the surface, but it's not working or it can be quantitative defect where you don't have any protein on the surface. So a type one is person that has less than 5% of GP2B3A on their platelet surface has no platelet aggregation and type two person has 10 to 20% of GP2B3A. A person who's called a variant can have anywhere from 20 to hundred percent of normal levels. But what's all in common with all three subtypes is that it doesn't matter how much protein you have, it doesn't work that well. What sparked your interest in Glanfruits? In 1991, I started graduate school at the Medical College of Wisconsin, and I got in with Dr. Peter Newman at the University Blood Research Institute, and he was studying the very first Glansman patients to be analyzed by something called PCR, polymerase chain reaction, and they found out that they could use this technique on Glansman platelets. And they discovered two defects in people from Israel and some people from Iraq. When I went to work for Dr. Peter Newman, I was just a graduate student and I asked him for a project and he said, okay, a young boy from France who's five years old and we know he has glanswine, but we don't know how, can you do this technique and find out? I really loved to solve the mystery. So that was my very first paper in 94 was solving that person's defect. And then in in 1994, I decided instead of re finding out how these people's platelets are defective, is correct their condition by getting their bone marrow stem cells from them and then trying to put in the gene, a replacement gene, one that works perfectly fine, into the stem cells and seeing if we could restore the megakaryocyte platelet function. And two people volunteered to send us 
they had their stem cells collected. So this was the early version of gene therapy. And then we put the gene in and then we grew them in the, in the tissue culture. And we saw that we could get the receptor to the surface. And then your mom called me, Helen Smith. She called me about in the year 2000. I got a call in Milwaukee one day from her and I was surprised. And she was very determined. Back then, the internet wasn't used as much as it is today, but she was very determined to help her daughter and people and children like her daughter, Julia, to find a cure for guns. I wish I could have heard that phone call. I know. <laughs> I was just thinking the same thing. Well, she said, okay, so we were working out with mice then that had guansmans. And, and she said, well, David, how much money do you need? And I said, oh, you know, maybe we spent, like, we probably need about, I don't know, we need $300,000 for the dog. So we needed, I don't know how much thousands of dollars. And she said, wow, that's a lot of money. I said, well, it's only like a dollar a day for mouse cages. And she said, oh, I, I think I can do that. So I kind of broke it down for her. And then she started having the fundraisers. So from that fundraising, we were able to then treat mice with Glonsmans and try to put the cells back in. And we showed in around 2000, and I want to say five, that we could cure mice with Glonsmans. And then in 2011, we moved on to treat dogs that had Glonsmans thrombostenia. I will tell you, your passion for what you do is very evident and when you speak about it. And we are extremely lucky to have you. Dr. Wilcox, you mentioned about the dogs. So you did, you did cure it in mice and you had dogs as well. How did you come across dogs with glansmans? Once we cured the mice, then I got a phone call from Auburn, Alabama, from Mary Boudreau. She said, David, I have dogs here with glansman thrombostemia. They're beautiful, great Pyrenees dogs. And, you know, I understand that people are a little bit hesitant when you talk about working with dogs, but I would never feel comfortable going to a human from a mouse. We were happy because we could do a protocol where you would do it just like the peripheral blood stem cell phoresis. You give them a shot. We had to give them a little bit of sedation because they would jump off the table and run away if we didn't. But other than that, it was once we collect the cells from them, they wake up and they eat within about a half an hour and they're fine. So we did pretty much the protocol on the, on dogs that we're proposing to do in people. That actually segues perfect into, you know, the whole gene therapy thing. You have explained a little bit within your answers what gene therapy is, but it's pretty new to the U.S. And I know that it's very, very new within the hemophilia community. They are starting to do gene therapy for hemophilia over in the U.K. right now. But what exactly is gene therapy and why does the medical community think that it might be this great big next step? If you have glansman, either you're not missing, but defective, I guess I would say, or doesn't work properly. And we can put in our gene transfer vector a good copy of the normal gene, and it will go into the person's DNA, into their parent cells, and will make the proper protein hopefully for the rest of the person's life, treated three dogs. And about six months after we gave them back their own cells, we stopped their bleeding at, I think it was from 
three minutes to seven minutes, which is near normal or normal bleeding types. And when these are big hairy dogs, and when we shaved their legs, they had petechia or big bruising all over their legs. And so we didn't see that anymore. Gene therapy is way less invasive than bone marrow transplant, correct? Because you're not having to go in, kill all of the current stem cells that you are actually using the stem cells that were already in that person. We are doing a bone marrow transplant, but it's of the person's own cells that have been genetically modified. And therefore, they shouldn't make an immune response to their own cells, which would be host versus graft effect. And graft versus host disease is where if they didn't get a perfect match, there have been glansman patients treated with bone marrow transplants, and they do get uh, lethal or we call it total ablative myeloablation, which means you wipe out the entire bone marrow. And it can be dangerous because if the graft doesn't take, then you need a backup. And there have been people who have been cured with, with bone marrow transplants, but others haven't worked as well. They say that for the patients that are, it seems like no other options. We don't have to give a full myeloablative treatment where we wipe out your entire bone marrow because it's your own cell. We learned with the dogs that if you get about 25, 10 to 20% of graft to take, it's called a mini transplant. You only have to give a little bit of chemotherapy or just a minor amount to get a, a little bit of their cells to engraft. And then you really have more platelets in your body than you need to stop bleeding. So if we correct just a fraction of them, I would say hopefully... Now, with this protocol, we're hoping to get around 25 to 30% of it's that are, have the new gene in them, while the rest are your same old cells. In the human cell and everything, you were able to correct it on that level. And so now you have been preparing to potentially to go to the next step, which is getting the FCA approval for a clinical trial. What are you finding to be your biggest challenges? We take the challenges as they come. We expect that there are going to be challenges. We are making our vectors acceptable for the FDA. We have to make a little minor adjustment. And so one of the problems was, is that we always wonder, are we going to, Glossman's one out of a million people, it, that's pre predicted. To find a person who would volunteer for the study when it's only one out of a million people, you would say, okay, maybe there's 300 people in America, in USA that are, and they have to be an adult too. You have to get your vectors ready. You have to test them in the tissue culture environment. We have our papers with the dogs and the mice to back us up as preclinical data. And then you have to apply to the FDA for an application to do a trial. We probably would propose a phase one trial, which is a safety study to see how safe it is on maybe two people. But I would say it's doable if we can get the funding to get a, a we call the investigational drug applications, IND. If we get that approved, then we could move forward. The Glasman Research Foundation got us through all the preclinical with donations from people, from patients, from the foundation, got us through all that testing, and we got some NIH grants to help. The National Hemophilia Foundation starting to focus a little bit more on ultra rares. It seems like a couple of other, you know, organizations are starting to focus on ultra rares. And then we're seeing a lot of pharmaceutical companies kind of focusing and turning their heads our way as well. When you can see things working, and even though I can tell you I got many notebooks and 
I have a few pages, I call them the golden pages where everything worked after so many tries, just cherish those moments. So it does take a while. You have to have a very, you know, a lot of persistence and patience. So hang in there. I do appreciate everyone who has sent me Christmas pictures over the years, t-shirts, towels, even just pictures or Christmas cards and things like that. And it makes me happy to to see these things, you know, I mean, it just, I haven't forgotten about anyone. My Savasi Kukurataki, who's also my wife, I asked her because she's better off with Facebook and she keeps track of the database and she keeps me informed every now and then of what's going on, the good things and the sad and the challenges. And so I do know what's going on. So don't think that I've forgotten. I know you and mom kept in touch very much so you were talking at least once a month and she would kind of keep you up to date and everything so really even though you're this like myth in like legend within the community <laughs> you have that's you've kept tabs kind of on everybody <laughs> and you do you care i think that that's one of those things where not every community has something like that where the people who are working towards a cure have become cheerleaders for the community and we're very lucky to have you i did want to update you so i think we told you when we saw you last that we were like around 600 members for the support group we're at 764 that's amazing and because i think helen pictured that and but we couldn't grasp it you know if you think about i mean maybe more people have gone than we know and maybe more People are carriers for Glansman that we know, but for them to all be able to get together, I know that I've heard so many times that when somebody felt so isolated and alone that they had Glansman and then they find people just that have it also and that they're not the only one in the world dealing with this. You've mentioned a couple of times your team. Now... You've actually had a couple of people on your team who have been there from the very beginning. In the lab for 20, just reached 20 years. Savvy came on a little bit after, but she's been there a long time. And I also have Lily in my lab who's working on the factor eight side for hemophilia. Bone marrow transplanters, hematologists that see patients regularly, patient advocates. We have a team in Boston, Children's. We had to assemble a team from Indiana, University of Pennsylvania. So. I go to the best groups in the world and ask them to work with us so that the best groups I can find to help to do this properly. You mentioned in there that, you know, Boston is kind of one of the places that helps and gives a little bit of feedback. This is the first time that we are announcing this, but we are going to do our first ever annual Glansman's Research Foundation conference in Boston of July 2023. But something that mom had been working towards for a very long time and ever since you let me know what your funding goals are now and how large they are i think our consensus within the board of the foundation was we need to start thinking like what's going to get potential funders attention boston is what we decided for our location it is a headquarter for a lot of large pharmaceutical companies and we wanted to kind of have something for people with glansmans who could get together 
they can present to each other. We'll have some roundtable things. We'll have some leaders give some presentations and stuff as well. We just wanted something that was solely focused on GT and really be able to get these people together. Because like you had said earlier, it's that moment when you see somebody with Glansman's meet somebody else with it, where they've been told, you know, they're one in a million. They're probably never going to come across anybody else with it. To meet them in person and really kind of get that sense of there are other people out there like me. That's wonderful. A lot of clinicians like have seen glantamines or heard of it, or but you, you know, there's still a lot of clinicians that need to be educated because they know about glantamine, but they haven't seen a patient and they need to know what to do when specialty physicians as well as the basic science community. And believe me, these rare, they call morphin disorders or ultra rare orders. There is interest in helping these people. When the, the pharmaceutical companies see that the patients want this, they start to getting excited about it. So congratulations. We're hoping that with everything going, if everything goes well, we want this to be something that's an annual thing. Whether or not it's in in Boston or not, but we'll, you know, we want to try to get as many people there as possible. And a big thing just to throw out there is we're going to try and make it available for everyone international as well. So we're going to try and do something so that you guys can be there too. Mom would be so proud of you and so happy. She made me, she said to me one day, David, I want you to promise me right now that you're never going to see this through the end and you're never going to give up. And I want you to promise me right now. I said, Helen, are you serious? You're going to ask me to make that. I've been working on this for 20 years. Yeah, I'm going to give up now. Just promise me. And I said, okay, I promise you. So now I got to do it. Dr. Wilcox, thank you so much for doing this with us. It was only right to have you as our first guest on the podcast. You're kind of one of the reasons why the foundation exists. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. And we really made some great friends in the past and in hopefully even more new ones in the future it helps to see the people and hear the stories and motivates us to do better to work harder to work faster to get things right to know that you're behind us is so uplifting 